text for this morning's sermon is taken from Daniel 1, which we have just read. The sermon was prepared using the New King James Version of the Bible. After the reading of the sermon, we'll respond with the singing of Psalm 119, the stanza 14, 15, 37, and 38. Beloved congregation of the Lord Jesus Christ, the gospel of Jesus Christ is also called the gospel of the kingdom. Christ's kingdom is gospel. It is good news, excellent news, that he is king, our king. He is the one who will establish everlasting righteousness and peace. Under his reign, paradise will be restored. The good news of the coming of Christ's kingdom is a theme that runs through the whole book of Daniel. But note the context of this gospel. God's people are in exile. They are trampled and despised people. The throne of David seems to be destroyed forever. What has happened to all the promises of the coming Messiah, the son of David? Yes, what has happened to God's covenant promises? Here in the book of Daniel, God repeats and confirms in a most wonderful way that Christ is coming and that nothing, no world power, no persecution, nothing can stop the coming of his kingdom. Everything in history is working towards the great day of Christ's final coming in glory. His kingdom will come and grind all the kingdoms of this world to powder. His kingdom will fill the whole earth. It is a kingdom that will last forever. Christ is coming. This is the message of comfort for God's trampled people in exile. The Son of Man will be seated at God's right hand. But now, how is this kingdom coming? God's kingdom is indeed making progress in the midst of this world, but the power and the greatness of Christ's kingdom is not according to a man. According to man, it is not according to this world. When we read this book, Daniel, the power and the glory of God's kingdom is not seen in the great armies or vast numbers. Instead, we see God's power in preserving for himself a small remnant. We see his almighty reign in the faithfulness of a few humble servants in the midst of suffering. God's kingdom is making steadfast progress, even there in the midst of Babylon. God's people seem to be trampled down, a defeated people in exile. But God's kingdom is made manifest even in the midst of severe trials and temptations and persecutions. The greatness of the glory of his kingdom does not consist in worldly splendor, or in the vast numbers of the majority of people, but in the righteousness and holiness. Yes, the kingdom of Christ is coming, where its citizens seem to be a small trampled people in the midst of Babylon. God's kingdom progresses and grows and proceeds when a young youngster decides not to defile himself with the food of the king. The kingdom grows and increases when three young men refuse to bow the, bow the knee before the image of a man. The glory of this kingdom excels when Daniel refuses to close his window or to decrease the frequency of his prayers. Yes, it is all God's work. It is Christ preserving his church. But the glory and power of his kingdom becomes evident in the faithful obedience of God-fearing men in the midst of many trials, temptations, and persecutions. I proclaim God's word to you with this theme. The kingdom, oh, sorry, the coming of God's kingdom proceeds. We will note that the Lord judges his people, that the Lord preserves a remnant for himself, and that the Lord blesses faithful obedience. In the first place, we note that the Lord judges his people. It is the start of the Babylonian exile. According to the prophecy of Jeremiah, the exile will last 70 years, 
the judgment of the Lord will come, has now come. In the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem and besieged it. And the Lord gave Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hand. Verses 1 and 2. Scripture des- describes Jehoiakim, king of Judah, with a, that sad refrain. And he did evil in the sight of the Lord, according to all that his fathers has done. 2 Kings, verse, 2 Kings 23, verse 37. With much patience, the Lord has sent his prophets to Jerusalem to call his people to repentance. He has done so for hundreds of years, but now, finally, the hour of her visitation has come. The 70 years of her Babylonian exile has begun. At this stage, Jerusalem and the temple still stands. At this stage, only some of the people were taken captive, and only a part of the articles of the temple have been carried away. Jerusalem and the temple are not yet destroyed. The wicked king Jehoiakim continues to reign in Jerusalem for another six years, while Daniel and his companions are already in exile. At first, this seems unfair. The wicked Jehoiakim and his men are spared, while Daniel and others faithful men have to go into exile. But when we consider that Daniel and his three friends were among the first to go into exile, we are reminded of another passage where the Lord says, If they do these things to green wood, what will, what will be done to the dry? Luke 23, chapter 23, verse 31. Sometimes in this life, the Lord throws his children into the furnace to purify them like gold, while he preserves the ungodly for a later date of total destruction. And thus it also happens here in our text. Daniel was among the first captives at the very start of the 70-year Babylonian exile, and he remained in exile for the full period of 70 years. We read at the end of this chapter that Daniel continued until the first year of King Cyrus. That was the year when the captives could return to rebuild Jerusalem. In other words, Daniel outlived the full period of 70 years of the Babylonian exile and could witness the return of the captives and proclamation of Cyrus to rebuild Jerusalem. Although the Lord sorely chastised his people and although he brought upon them all the calamities and punishments of which his prophets had spoken to sanctify his children and to to destroy the ungodly among them, he did not forsake his people. Also there in Babylon, the Lord was preserving a remnant for himself. We note that in the second place, that the Lord preserves a remnant for himself. The captives are taken to the land of Shinar, that is Babylon. Babylon. It is not without significance that Babylon is here described as the land of Shinar, verse 2, Shinar, that is the land of Nimrod and the Tower of Babel. It forms the antithesis that runs as a theme throughout the book of Daniel, God's kingdom over against the kingdom of this world, Jerusalem over against Babylon, the city of God over against Babel. Now among the captives of Judah, some boys, teenagers, were chosen to be trained in the wisdom of the Chaldeans. Our translation calls them, in verse 4, young men. However, the Hebrew text calls them boys. At the age of 20, they would be called men, but now they, were, but now they are called boys, which means that they were still under the age of 20. They were still teenagers. Among the captives, the most promising boys were chosen, boys who were gifted in all wisdom, possessing knowledge and quick to understand. This requirement, requirement makes clear that they were not small boys. They were youngsters who already excelled at excellence and gifted students. Now among them 
were also Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, but the chief of the eunuchs gave them different names. Daniel means God will judge, but now he receives the name Belteshazzar. In chapter 4, verse 8, Nebuchadnezzar makes this comment that the name Belteshazzar is according to the name of his god. Belteshazzar is composed of the word Bel, which refers to the chief idol of the Babylonians. Hananiah means Yahweh is gracious, but now he receives the name Shadrach, which refers to the moon god of the Babylonians. Mishael means who is like Yahweh. The meaning is that there is no one comparable to the Lord. The Lord, Yahweh, is so great that no one can be compared to him. But now Mishael receives the name Meshach, which refers to yet another Babylonian idol. The third companion of Daniel is Azariah. Azariah means Yahweh helps. His name is now changed to Abednego, which means servant of Nebo. Nebo was, after Bel, the second greatest idol of the Babylonians. Compare also Isaiah 46, verse 1. Abednego, servant of the Babylonian god Nemo, Nebo. It must be painful for Daniel and his companions to receive these heathen and idolatrous names. They received from their own parents, na parents' names with specific meaning. It is the kind of names that godly parents who trusted in the Lord would give to their children. God will judge. Yahweh is gracious, who was like Yahweh, and Yahweh helps. These names speak of trust to the Lord and speak of the greatness and mercy of the Lord. But now they receive heathen names. The Babylonians call them after their own gods. Daniel and his three companions are God's people, sons of Abraham's, and their very names remind them of their God, the living God, who is all-powerful and faithful. But now their names are changed. The intent is that they forget the identity of, as covenant children of Yahweh and become true Chaldeans, citizens of Babylon. Furthermore, in the midst of the Babylonians, these gifted youngsters have become trophies of the Babylonian gods. We see this already in verse 2, where we were told that Nebuchadnezzar brought these captives together with some articles of the temple of God into the house of his God. The meaning is clear. These heathens, as we know, from the rest of scripture, ascribe their war, war victories to the power of their gods. Compare, for example, 1 Kings 20, verse 23. A victory in war proved the power of their gods. When Nebuchadnezzar returned victoriously from Jerusalem, the Babylonians thought that their idols, Bel, Nebo, and the rest had the victory over Yahweh. Therefore, the treasures of Yahweh of his temple were brought into the treasure house of the Babylonian god, Bel. And thus, Nebuchadnezzar does not only honor his God with the treasures from Yahweh's temple, but also with these young men from the house of David, become trophies for Bel, at least. That was what the Babylonians thought, and thus their names were changed accordingly. Their intention was that they may no longer be servants of Yahweh, but servants of the Babylonian God. Dear congregation, we see here Satan's attack on covenant children. He wants to rob them of their identity of children of Yahweh and make them part of this world, citizens of Babylon. There was also another temptation, a snare set for them. The king commanded that they be fed from his own table. Now, is that not a great privilege when we 
when such a mighty king of the world empire makes you part of his household and allows you to eat this food of his table? Why would Daniel refuse this? For some, this may seem to be something quite insignificant, something really trivial, where Daniel could really have made some adjustments and compromised. Why did Daniel make such a fuss about this? Was he maybe just that kind of person who was unable to adjust himself to new circumstances, some kind of misfit in a progressive world? Was he maybe a bit too radical? Or was he maybe just a fanatic who thought it important to cling so strictly to his Jewish traditions? No, brothers and sisters, he was simply obedient. The seemingly insignificance of this case enhances the great faithfulness of this youngster. He would not compromise God's law, not in the least. God's law spoke of clean and unclean food, and much of the food of this heathen king would be unclean according to the ceremonial laws that God has given his people. Furthermore, God's law also forbid Israel to eat blood. That law included the way in which animals had to be slaughtered. The animal's throat had to be cut in order that all the blood could drain from its body. For example, Leviticus 17, this de- verses 10 to 14. God forbids his people to eat any meat of any animal that was strangled instead of throat cut. It is noteworthy that this law repeated also in the New Testament. The apostles, together with the elders in Jerusalem, sent a letter to the believers who were of who were of the Gentiles, saying, It seemed good to the Holy Spirit and to us to lay upon you no greater burden than these necessary things, that you abstain from things offered to idols, from blood, from things strangled, and from sexual immorality. If you keep yourselves from these, you will do well. Acts 15, verses 28 and 29. These were typical things among the Gentiles. Moreover, At the Gentile feast, they also sacrificed a part of their food to the idols, so that all who ate from the table ate and drank in honor of that idol. Such sacrifices to the idols included also drink offerings of wine, wine libations. And therefore Daniel solemnly resolved not to defile himself either with the food or with the wine of the king's table, and requested the chief officer over them that he might not defile himself. Verse 8. Our translation says that he did not want to defile himself with the delicacies of the king's table, but the Hebrew text simply speaks of the portion of the king's table, referring to the food which the king ate. Daniel did not want to defile himself with the table of the heathen king. Our translation also says in verse 12 that Daniel asked for vegetables, but the Hebrew word is seed, or what is sown. Given us what has been sown, give us a crop. It is not limited to vegetables. It is included. It includes an example, for example, also grain. It may even mean give us bread, give us normal food, but not the defiled portion of the king. Daniel was no fanatic who refused to eat certain kinds of food. He simply did not want to defile himself. The defilement refers especially to th- three things. Firstly, the meat of unclean animals. In the second place, meat with blood and in the third place, meet with wine sacrificed to idols. Daniel was determined to keep God's law. The food of the king's table would defile him. God told his people to regard these as unclean. Now Daniel was the first to make this firm decision to stay faithful to the Lord and to keep himself undefiled. Verse 8 mentions only Daniel. Afterwards, in verse 12, his companions were also included. 
Daniel took the lead in this, but he also acted on behalf of his three friends, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. Dear congregation, Daniel's request to the chief priest was no easy request to make. In fact, the request could have cost him his life. It would have been quite normal if the chief officer responded by saying, Who are you, Jewish captive, to call the table of the king unclean? And it would be normal that the chief officer would report him to the king, this captive who refuses to obey the king's command, who also leads others to despise the table of the king, who also refuses to honor the idols of Babylon or to drink to their wine libations. Therefore, Daniel's request is preceded by the comment, God has brought Daniel into the favor and goodwill of the chiefs of the eunuchs. Therefore, the chief officer did not become angry or reported Daniel, but simply gave Daniel the reason why he could not comply with his request. It was as if the chief officer said to Daniel, I would gladly have granted your request, but I'm afraid that it would cost me my head. Therefore, the answer is no. The answer was clearly no. But Daniel did not give up. It would have been easy for him at this point to say, I tried my best. I spoke to the chief officer and even risked my life with this request. Now I can do nothing more but comply to the king's command. But no, Daniel was determined not to defile himself. It was not simply a treasured tradition of Jewish culture that he tried to uphold or something that he preferred to do, preferred not to do. No, it was a matter of obedience to God's law. Therefore, he does not give up. He now turns to the servant who in direct oversight over him and asks him that he put Daniel and his three companions to the test for a period of ten days, and he trusted the Lord for the outcome. The Lord did not disappoint his servant. In spite of the more sober diet, he and his friends looked healthier than all the others who ate from the king's table. Daniel simply obeyed the Lord without compromise, and the Lord blessed him. Now when we look at this in a broader context of the whole book, this was the first of many trials. The trials would even become greater. Think of the burning furnace. Think of the lion's den. In all these trials, Daniel and his three companions refused to make any compromise. They would not bow their knee once to an idol, not even in the face of a burning furnace. Daniel would not shrink back from praying in front of an open window, or would, and would not even reduce the frequency of doing so even when a lion's den has been prepared for him. Yes, in the midst of Babylon, and the Lord preserves for himself an undefiled remnant. Dear congregation, this brings us to consider consideration of our own day. We are in this world, we are spiritually called, which is spiritually called Babylon. The spirit of our time is one of so-called tolerance and compromise. We can so easily justify all our compromises with as many arguments. We are in this world, and if we are in Rome, we have to do as Romans do, should we not? But here we see a faithful servant of the Lord who refuses to depart one step to the left or to the right, who firmly resolved in his heart to obey the Lord in all things and to keep himself undefiled in the midst of this world. Yes, a young servant, a teenager. Are the youth not vulnerable in this world? Can they not easily be influenced by the world? Yes, they can. But here we see a few youngsters in the midst of Babylon who keep themselves pure. Their names testify that they had God-fearing parents who trusted in the Lord, who would therefore also have raised them with the teaching of the law and the prophets. The Lord blessed the fruit of their parents, even when they were torn away from their homes at such an early age. 
Yes, the Lord gave Daniel and his friends a steadfast heart and discernment, an insight and wisdom, not only to be clever students, but first of all the wisdom and discernment of his word and his law, and above all the fear of the Lord, which is the most basic principle of all wisdom and knowledge. Daniel feared the Lord, and therefore he shunned defilement. Therefore the Lord blessed him and his three companions even more abundantly, so that in the end, after three years, they did not only excel in all, excel all other students who received the same training, but they even excelled in wisdom and knowledge far above all the wise and learned men of the whole empire. We note that in the, first, in the last place, the Lord blesses faithful obedience. Teenagers usually have a good appetite. Imagine boys of about 16 or 18 who are offered the privilege to eat daily the food of a king, and not just, just food of any king, but the most powerful king of the greatest golden empire on earth. Would you not be overwhelmed by such a privilege and with excitement look forward to the taste of the royal food and the costly wine of such a king? A temptation indeed. On top of that, we have to consider what a great honor the king bestowed on them when he gave this command. By allowing them to eat from his table, they were placed in royal com company and were counted royal themselves. Would such honor and such luxury easily be despised by a youngster who sees before him an open door to enter a royal life? Yes, how would a youngster stand in the face of such temptation? To Daniel, obedience to the Lord and to his word came first. It reminds us of another passage where scripture reads, speaks about the faith and faithfulness of Moses. By faith, Moses, when he became of age, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter, choosing rather to suffer affliction with the people of God than to enjoy the passing pleasures of sin, esteeming the reproach of Christ greater riches than the treasures of Egypt, for he looked to the reward. Hebrews 11, verses 24 to 26. The same can be said of Daniel. He did not forget that he was a covenant child of Yahweh. He did not seek to be elevated above the trampled people of God. He counted the reproach of Christ greater riches than the treasures of Babylon. Therefore the Lord bestowed on Daniel and on his three companions gifts and honors in such abundance that they excelled even ten times all the wise and learned men of the whole kingdom. It was more than human gifts and human knowledge. These gifts were clearly from God so that later even the king and all the Chaldeans had to acknowledge that the spirit of the living God was dwelling in these men and that the Almighty is with them. The Lord established Daniel that he could continue steadfastly as prophet of the Lord for the entire period of the 70 years of exile. The one king fell and the next one rose until a whole list of kings came and went. And during all that turmoil and change, Daniel continued steadfast in his task and calling. Here in chapter 1, it may seem as, it, as if the trial was not great, of a great importance. Would it not have been a small, insignificant compromise if he did eat from the king's table? No, the Lord also says, He who is faithful in what is least is faithful also in much, and he who is unjust in what is least is unjust also in much. Luke 16, verse 10. Dear congregation, let us not comp compromise God's word to adjust ourselves to the world in which we live, 
not even in the smallest things, for it often in things that seem small and insignificant that our faithfulness to the Lord is tested. Our faith is tested in the normal course of everyday life, at home, at school, at the workplace. Even your clothes, your choice of music, your kind of language you use, the way you spend your leisure time will reflect your determination to remain undefiled in the midst of the world. Is it still clear when you walk in the streets of this Babylon that you are a covenant child? Or has the antithesis disappeared? The antithesis between the church and world, between Jerusalem and Babylon, is slowly disappearing, not only when members of false churches live secular lives, but also when members of true churches start to compromise with the world and seek to please men instead of God, or when they compromise just as much as is necessary to avoid the shame of being called radical. Yes, when Daniel refuses to eat the king's table, that was radical. Think about it. Brothers, brothers and sisters, let us not seek to nestle ourselves in Babylon, but solemnly resolve in our hearts to flee the defilement of this world in all things, and God will establish us. We find this same teaching also in the New Testament where the Apostle says to the Corinthians, What accord has Christ with Belial? What part has a believer with an unbeliever? And what agreement has the temple of God with idols? For you were... You are the temple of the living God. As God has said, therefore come out from among them and be separate, says the Lord. Do not touch what is unclean, and I will receive you. The apostle quotes from the Old Testament and teaches this to the church in the New Testament. Be separate. Do not touch what is unclean. Do not touch what is unclean, and I will receive you. I will be a father to you, and you shall be my sons and daughters, says the Lord Almighty. Therefore, having these promises, beloved, let us cleanse ourselves from all filthiness of the flesh and spirit, perfecting holiness in the fear of God. 2 Corinthians 6, 17 to chapter 7, verse 1. Yes, Christ's kingdom is coming, but the power and the glory of his kingdom cannot now be seen in great numbers. Instead, we only see a small and despised remnant. His kingdom is growing and increasing when the few youngsters firmly resolve in their hearts not to defile themselves. Yes, our Lord Jesus Christ is cleansing and preserving for himself a remnant, a holy bride, who does not defile herself with the filth of this world. The glory of Christ's kingdom is now, in this world, not seen by vast numbers and great earthly power, but in the seemingly insignificant faithfulness of a small remnant who cling to the truth of God's word and put their trust in him. Amen.